Uh, we're here on building the blockchain. This episode is uh, January the 24th. And what we're doing today is we're talking to uh, Monica Profit from Rise Housing. And uh, what we've been doing uh, with this series of different podcasts is now that we've brought the podcast back since we've been off since uh, September, is now we're uh, going to speak to the different uh, speakers who have previously spoken at our events and who will speak at our future events. And Monica will be one of those. Uh, she spoke at our uh, fireside chat in December in New York. And now we're here in New York recording this with Monica. Hi, how are you doing today? Hi, nice Great. to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me on, David. Great, thank you. Thank you for being on the podcast. We just want to talk about a little bit about you and let uh, the listeners learn a little bit about what you're doing and who you are. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Monica Profit. As you said, I'm the uh, founder and CEO of Rise Housing. I started it a couple years ago, although I thought it up about 16 years ago when I had a completely different interest set and skill set. I was a working artist. I converted my my kitchen into um, a painting studio. So it was you know really not safe to be cooking food in there with that many painting materials in there. And that was fine because I, I didn't mind not cooking at home at all. And um, I was just... I was living in this small studio um, with a bunch of other artists in their places. So it was like a perfect little communal space in the sense that we could run into each, into each other in the hallways and the laundry room. But And we had a lot of, we were all friends, but we really had our own independent apartments. And we always lived under this guise of, you know, who has the longest lease and when are they going to turn on the building? And I, I hear the owners of the building, uh, the Diller family that built the Diller apartments that we lived in. You know, I heard, I heard that the Diller sons want to sell the place. And so I started thinking about how we could maybe try to buy the building. And um, and we didn't, back then, this was 16 years ago, there wasn't tokenization and there wasn't anything like that, but I started sketching it out and I came up with a tokenizing model um, that I didn't know what would, would be cryptocurrency and blockchain to function. I just thought it up and figured, well, I'm sure someone else has thought this up too because you know, like, ideas are agnostic. They don't belong to whoever they occur to, they belong to who does something with them. So I thought, well, cool, someone with an MBA is going to go do this and I can't wait to rent to own my house and slowly buy equity and that'll be cool so I'm sure someone's going to make this and I'm going to go back to painting paintings <laughs> and um, put the idea away thought it was really cool couldn't wait for someone to do it and if you don't make a painting you're going to eventually see it in a gallery and be like oh that one occurred to me too but I didn't get to it so I was just like this business I'm not going to do it on purpose. Someone's going to do it. I can't wait to see it and use it. And I just thought I'd be a consumer of it. And then, you know, fast forward about 14 years and I didn't see anybody doing it. And so I started, you know, really fishing around and looking for the tech that can make it work. And that was a big part of why I left arts and culture and went into blockchain. I've been in tech before. I'd done a couple, a startup and been in early teens and things like that. But I just, um, I saw that blockchain was way too exciting to not make the leap. So I sold my last company, which was in the arts and culture space. I had an artist retreat center and exhibitions program throughout the world and uh, an online training course and a lot of digital marketing. I just had to sell it and move into blockchain. So that's how I ended up where I am. In a strange way, from painting in my kitchen to now you know, fully using my kitchen, working from home and launching a blockchain company. Wow. Well, that's, a great, that's a great journey from being kind of like a struggling artist and then building a successful artist colony uh, that you had and then you built that up uh, and then uh, moving on to blockchain and then looking at the aspect of uh, 
hard to tokenize real estate uh, even before people were thinking about that. Uh, I know people, like you said, uh, throughout the ages have been people trying to barter and always is bartering that's always involved, but um, people weren't really thinking about having the real estate attached to uh, having like a, a token where everyone could, could participate. Now there's co-ops, but that's a little bit different. Yeah, so it's kind of something like the co-op concept, but then using more fractional ownership. You know, um, to drill into it, I think a lot of people start with a, one of two places. People like to start where they're familiar, and you're starting in the co-op model. Some people start yeah. in the REIT model. Okay. So co-ops, people say, oh, it's like making it a co-op where you buy shares. And that's true, except in the current co-op model, you have to buy so many shares at once that you still have to incur debt. And your, and your share ownership is tied to your occupancy. So rather than um, mix occupancy and shares and, and ownership together, because there are a lot of ways that you can benefit from real estate. You can live in it. You can invest in it. So I'm just making the fiduciary part, the investment part, that can be available to tenants or can be available to people who are living anywhere. They don't have to live in the buildings. They can live anywhere and invest anywhere in one of our buildings. But some people also think of this like it's a REIT model. And if you think about like a REIT model, I could say, well, then this is sort of functions like a property-specific REIT. And in being a property-specific REIT, we can be a lot more transparent and clear with all of our investors. They can know exactly where that place is located, not just like a pool. And also REITs have um, a, a standard amount of annual recurring um, management fees that really stack up. And there's a lot of, there's a, there's a buzzword in blockchain, disintermediation. It's almost like anti-disestablishmentarianism. It's like, can you get a longer word than disintermediation? Yes. But, you know, getting rid of the middlemen and making things transparent is a huge part of what blockchain can do. And that's how you can get the trust of a crowd. And that's how you can get trustworthiness to be able to solicit to a crowd, honestly. You know, not everyone's a really savvy investor. And a REIT could sound like a good idea on the front end and then have all these hidden fees that are just in the fine print that that's totally legal. But with, a, you know, something like tokenizing a building, with our model, it's extremely clear cut so that the not-so-savvy investor can come up to speed easily and start seeing the opportunities that we're providing for them in front of them. Okay, yes. And, and like you said, they don't have to reside in the property. They don't. And are you, are you giving dividends? Or there is, that yes, it dividend is. Model? So the idea that a building, an apartment building is what we're focusing on as an asset class okay. because that type of commercial property is fantastic for making, again, making it very clear to the small increment investor that might not be super savvy right away. So we have an entire financial literacy program that we're going to be rolling out as well to sort of bring people in. And that functions as a big part of our marketing to really let people know what these opportunities look like and speak their language. So in trying to make it transparent to them, we are kind of trying to make sure that whether you live in the building or you don't, you know, there's an entire class of tenants that, that they rent because they, most of them rent because they don't have the opportunity to buy because lending isn't the right product for them. They don't have all that money that to save up and they to put as a down payment and they don't have, you know, the credit worthiness. They might have too much debt from student loans. You know, millennials are buying at really low rates because they just can't. So how do we get around this debt conundrum? You know, there's also incredible inequalities in debt. I mean, it's really hard to talk to a mortgage broker and tell them that, you know, 
the mortgage industry is really sexist. If you look at a married couple, men, because of the wage gap, are often listed first on a mortgage. So even as a married couple that bought a place together are both listed, a woman's name is listed second most of the time. And therefore, when they both are making payments on time, upon divorce, when you try to split up not just the property, but the creditworthiness that that, that property earned while that mortgage earned them, the man's credit score is higher for it than the woman's. She was listed second because she earned less to begin with. So, you know, you can say you're just dealing with numbers, but, you know, the institution has got inequality baked into it. Now, let's also look at how it's really racist. I'm sorry, but it just is. If you look at the average um, net worth of the average uh, white American family in middle age in the in um, a typical emerging market city, second tier, third tier city in America, $140,000 is the typical total net worth of a family of four in middle class America if they're white. You take the same education level, you take the same demographics every other way, but you add in that you say they're black instead, the average amount of uh, total net worth is $11,000 for that same that same family. Same education, same job, same earning potential, and same earning technically, if you don't look at the wage gap there too, mm-hmm. but $11,000. Now, why is that? Because Jim Crow was baked into the bank accounts of their ancestors, right? So because we have a system that has generationally and intergenerationally been unequal, how do we continue, how do we keep modifying that system instead of, you know, just making a new system. So if you just make a new system, the the legacy of lending inequality doesn't haunt your system anymore. And that's really what I want to see. Now that's a lot uh, to absorb, but I agree with a lot of what you said because what's going on in the housing market and and it keeps uh, perpetuating itself. And you know what we want to try to do is try to find solutions uh, to these problems. And that's what we're going to be talking about at the event where Monica will be speaking. We'll be having uh, an event, uh, blockchain, uh, transforming uh, real estate. So that'll be coming up and she'll be one of the speakers there. We want to try to see how blockchain can transform some of these inequalities. Now we know blockchain is being used uh, just for pure profit reasons, which is great. Uh, We spoke about that. I spoke about that separately uh, on another uh, episode broadcast. But also we want to talk about how blockchain can work for social impact aspects. One of them is real estate. And like you said, if uh, you can have all these credit scores and all these backgrounds of people that are just not the credit scores and, you know, uh, a blockchain can incorporate because it's so powerful, technology can incorporate other factors besides a credit score, background, of who you are. So I think that's one of the powers that uh, blockchain chain can be used for. What do you think about that? Because I know, you know, some of these uh, in some different countries, in some different places, they're using blockchain, you know, as uh, some parts uh, of your aspects of not just how you spend money, but who you associate yourself with and different aspects to give you a score and grading. And, uh, you know, if you can try to incorporate that, it can be used for good or bad, just like anything is like Facebook is, you know. Yeah. Uh, so there's, um, but that's one thing I've been thinking, I've been hearing about lately is about um, using blockchain to have uh, scoring that is not just Experian and credit. Yeah, I mean, getting away from centralized um, rating systems to distribute them. I mean, it's still a rating system, but if you are able to say, well, okay, it doesn't, it's not according to just one authority. I have to call that one authority to try to clear up, say, a 
place that didn't realize I did pay my bill on time. And then they sent it to collections and then it hit my credit score and I have to undo it. I've, I've done that before. I've had to go back and find the proof that I paid that hospital bill and then go back and show the people and then get a letter from them and then take right. it back to experience and all of this. And, you know, I don't think that necessarily putting that on a distributed ledger changes a whole lot about that system. It just means that, you know, it could be more robust, more comprehensive. It's the same thing. I mean, I think credit scores have also been used for good and bad themselves. But in a bigger sense, you touched on social impact. You start talking about social impact in a very different way. I don't think that there are some companies that are social impact companies and some companies that aren't. Actually, I think every company is a social impact company. And when you say that, it's not just that every company is filling a need in the economy because if it didn't, if it exists, then therefore it's, it's being used by the consumer. All right, let's talk about that. Monsanto, social impact company. Now that we call it one, we can score it as one and we can evaluate it as such and say it's abysmal at being a social impact company, right? So if all of the companies are social impact companies, now we can actually say, you guys are doing your part and you guys are doing exactly. a great job and everybody's in this together. Right. So figure out how you are not serving humanity and we're not going to deal with you or we're going to have to change you because there's a new standard in town and it's called just simply in our language of defining. So we're a social impact company like every other company. And if you don't run your company with a conscience, you're falling behind. We let in, right, because we don't want to let all these other companies off the hook. Exactly. That's one thing. And then, if it, and then if you only have a few people participating, a few companies participating, it, it won't work. Exactly. If you have a um, social impact uh, movement, which is great, but if that movement can't cover everything, can't cover the Monsantos and the GMs. Well, the then world, we should be evaluating why they even exactly. exist, shouldn't we? Well, we could evaluate how what their impact is. Right, um, and what they should be changing to, to be able to get that score up, you know? Yeah. I'd be happy to start scoring companies on their social impact. And that's fine. <laughs> Take yeah. that into their credit yeah. score right there. Yeah. And their P&L. Yeah. yeah. Their yeah. balance sheet for the earth. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's you know what's coming up with new generations of uh, people uh, who are uh, coming into business and in authority. They're looking at that, not just as the bottom line for all companies. Yeah. yeah, right. And I know there's some other movements like uh, the the B. You can uh, the B Corporation when you have you can have a, a symbol of uh, when you went through mm -hmm. a certain kind of process. And, and again, that's centralized, like that. right? That means yeah. that like a government said in a certain in certain states, like you can you can uh, you know register as such, and you're going to follow these. I think it's 234 you know main things you have to check, mm -hmm. check off the box of to be able to be call yourself a B Corp. Um, and some of them might be really important to your business model, and some might be crippling but if you could have a sliding scale on that if that was something that we could start evaluating each other you know a yelp of social conscience in a sense i just think that there are a lot of opportunities to use um crowdsourced information crowdsourced verification whether it's on the blockchain or not it would just of course be more secure on a blockchain but you know i'm not sure that blockchain is made for every single application distributed information i think is getting more and more interesting and more and more useful distributed where it's stored not always totally relevant, but distributed in terms of where it's sourced. Absolutely. And that's really exciting to me to see that our, our technology now in a distributed ledger is is mirroring our, our ways of communicating from the Internet 1.0, which is, you know, a distributed voice now. We no longer have just one authority. Um, actually, I saw this wonderful Broadway play last night called The Network. It wasn't Broadway. Was it Broadway? It was Broadway. Anyway, The Network. And um, oh, it was fantastic. And it was all it was set, set in the 70s. And uh, it was amazing to see 
see just how this organization, how they painted the system of this organization to work and such the authority of it. And just how, you know, it was it was a lovely piece to see, of course, in a contemporary context, because things are getting more and more distributed and, and it's not going, it's not going to be reversing anytime soon. Yes, definitely. You can see that that trend is there. Whether there are small companies or large companies, it's there because you yeah. can see it in media. You see the large companies like Disney, they're trying to be uh, as diverse as they can, even even the large companies. So I think it's very something that's trending because a lot of people are able to have their own background and, and their needs and their wants. They can have they can give a little. Now we can talk a little bit about that. We're going to get into privacy, but if you want to get into and give some information uh, to get back something customized, that's kind of the debate that's going on. Could you clarify what you mean by that? Well, okay. Uh, to clarify, what I mean is information that you're providing to a large company so that they can all give you more of these services that are more niche and more uh, customized to each individual. You have to sacrifice some information for that. You have to give up some information for that. That's available. Now the blockchain makes that available. And that's, you know, that's something that is good, but there's something, you know, there's a bad side to that also. Now, I don't think that's necessarily linked to blockchain yeah. whatsoever. I mean, we already have that blockchain or no blockchain, yeah. you know? I mean, you tell, you either get the Macy's card and you start, you know, they know everything you buy or you don't, but it could get more and more granular if they wanted to. You don't need the blockchain for that whatsoever. Yeah, that's true. I guess that's more like a big data. Yeah, that's a big data. Yeah, a, a, a issue of big data. Yeah. And so we can, you know, go down that kind of that rabbit hole we'll, we'll um, talk about that another time sorry about really that big data, <laughs> but uh, big, I guess yeah big but data I'm, and privacy are yeah. sort of they're intertwined but they really are very separate issues and I think that blockchain gives us the ability our blockchain proposes an infrastructure in which you know with the right the right DAP that comes along and the right you know um, innovators in this space can really lock down give these consumers the ability to own their data and sell it at exactly the granular level that they want to. And that's pretty exciting to think of someone being able to say, hey, I I know for sure immutably this is where my data resides. This is who owns what. And this is who I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing to give my grocery store all my grocery information because they give me a cryptocurrency for it or because they give me coupons for it or they give me something that works for me. That's worth it to me. But it's not worth it to me for the Russians to know which way I'm going to vote. Not cool. Don't, don't feel like selling it. Oh, they're going to pay a lot. Yeah, they better pay a lot. But actually, there's not a price for that. Or maybe there is a price for that. That should be up to the consumer to some degree. And, you know, at some point you might it might actually not need to be up to the consumer. I think there is a place where regulation and lawfulness and what, is, what constitutes citizenry comes in beyond just the, the hand of the economic hand behind it. So I think it could be even in the future, there are some data that, that it's illegal to sell and it's illegal to possess that doesn't belong to you. I think I would love to see that kind yeah. of come out of um, this deep dive into privacy laws and this new distributed ledger, you know, improved privacy. Yes, yes. I know that uh, you want to try to empower people. And I think people are looking at the Facebooks of the world and, and saying, you know, enough is enough. And we want to have a, a new paradigm and try to, to make everything more. I want to have my own information. I want to give it back to Facebook or give it back to... Uh, I don't want to give it. I want to sell it. Or, or sell 
that's my information. Where um, you know we we see the possibilities of blockchain, and we know how it's going to have global effects. And well, I just want to talk to you and then get back to a little bit about the rise housing, and then talk to you about you know, what you uh, what you've done today with that project, and a little bit about what you see for the future. Well, what I've done to date, let's see, I've been I've got all our financial models down. I you know niched it all down. I uh, broke it all out early in the process and then just sort of dove into the blockchain space and got to know as many people in the blockchain space as possible. This is actually my fifth company, fourth one that I founded, fifth one that I've been on the founding team of. I've never raised any money for any of these companies before. I've only ever bootstrapped a company. And it wasn't until I was at a conference um, at at Summit, actually, which is a wonderful place in uh, Utah, that I heard a talk from an investor, a VC, and he was talking about how, you know, he was asking the room, how, how much do you think Apple raised? You know, how much money did Microsoft raise? And it's remarkably little, like 1200 bucks first round for Apple, you know, and then like, uh, I think it was 275,000 way later to get to scale and grow uh, in like a series A or something. And then when they went IPO, I think they raised a million just to look better because they said it would look better for the IPO. <laughs> they never needed the money, right? And and I think good businesses, in, in my experience, in my four previous businesses, we didn't need the money and we didn't need to just split, you know, our attention between investor relations and the mission of the business. So um, after hearing that, I really changed my tune about even though Rise is a much more ambitious, larger scale business than I've done in the past, um, at least out of the gate in terms of scale and, and how far it can go and how far reaching it is. It's in a, a much broader shot, not a much broader industry than, you know, arts and culture, which is quite, quite specific. Uh, or before that was hospitality, before that um, finance, financial services and whatever. But this is really large. And I realized it was just, I was, I was psyching myself out. I was just intimidating myself. You know, I was like, I've got to raise money. I've got to get some people that are smarter than me around me right now. And it's like, what? You didn't believe that about any of your other companies. I looked at any, I looked at our numbers again and I realized we're actually going to be revenue positive before we run out of runway. And that's all just bootstrapped from me. I mean, I sold my last company. I sold a couple of investments and I bootstrapped it myself and we're about to be revenue positive. So I'm pretty, uh, pretty confident we're not going to really have to raise money. Now, with the right investor, would we turn it away? Absolutely not. If it was the right person who, who understood our mission, really wanted to be a part of this um, and, and could bring a lot of additional value as a board member. Absolutely. I would love to grow our team and our advisory board, but that does not mean I need to go courting investors while they, you know, also I can't tell you how weird it is to have built four companies already and now to be like in this, trying this new investor dance thing, which I was doing last year. Yeah, last year. Um, and having all this conviction, knowing what I've done, getting to this point, right where I'm going to be like, okay, now it's time to do the first deal, get the first thing out the door, get the first piece of tech completed. And, and to have some person who's heard all of like 22 minutes tops of my concept um, now poke holes in it and tell me how it's not going to work. Like it's the last thing in the world I need. I, you know, I feel like I have two speeds. I sit and I poke holes in the idea, poke holes in the idea, poke, and don't say a word. I just sit and I think and I think and I think about a business. 
And once I've answered all of my questions and objections, then I ask a couple of people, make sure I have all the questions and objections that I need answered, answered. And then my second speed is run like hell at the thing and don't stop until you build it. It's like either sit and say nothing or run like hell at it. So once I'm running like hell at it, the last thing I need is some person with gazillion more zeros in their bank account telling me how I can't do it. That's just not helpful. Yes. <laughs> Maybe I'm like falling on the side of wanting a counselor instead of an investor, but I think I'd rather get, you know, like some support in there. So that's where I've just kind of backed off from, you know, the, the investor dance because it's a huge distraction from the actual business. And more on strategic partners mm -hmm. who, who could be investors, who might not, or who might not be investors, Absolutely. but they're going to be valuable. Valuable to partners you. that want yes. to do business with us. They're going to be valuable to generate revenue. Absolutely. Just like you said with Apple, when the three people got together in the garage, they were there to create uh -huh. revenue right away, yeah. not to get invested. It was human resources, <laughs> human capital. That's what right. launched that business. And I'm plenty rich in that. I don't uh, need someone telling me I don't have enough exactly, of that. Exactly. Because now the concept kind of has been thrown on its head. Uh, you're looking to do a white paper first and get the investors first and then and then develop it out and then raise the money and then we, hire the developers. Which is the weirdest thing ever to me. I'm like, wait, is that really how people build businesses? Oh yeah, that's how you build businesses. Never spend your own money. I'm like, what? How could anybody think that you're down down for the count going to go to the mat with this business if you don't put your own in there? It's called skin in the game. It's called skin in the game. But I mean, I guess a lot of, you know, a lot of folks don't, don't do it that way and, you know, more power to them. I also see there's a high field your rate and I've got a 100% uh, success rate so you know I think the proof is in the pudding and also I think that you know Sometimes people are going to do really well raising a ton of money. That's great, but they seem to be people that know how to just manage a bunch of money. I know how to manage business. You know, it's different. That's so, yeah, that's great. That's yeah. great. And uh, we want to make sure that we're talking about having as many uh, women-owned businesses uh, in, the, in this area because you know we, we see a lack of that, like we were talking about previously. So uh, we want to make sure that we have people included at our events um, that are have different, all different types of backgrounds. Yeah. And that's what we're going to be coming up. Uh, you'll be at our event coming up in March, uh, March 21st here in New York. We're talking about how blockchain is transforming and transforming real estate. And uh, we've been doing different topics and different subjects and how blockchain is transforming different aspects. Uh, and I think real estate and people can really grasp how real estate can relate because it's an asset and it's backed and it's tangible. And they see blockchain as intangible and something in the cloud and something with a coin. You know, that's, that's funny because so I think my yeah. uh, my cousin asked me recently if I over over Thanksgiving uh, your year or so two years ago, a year and a half ago, he said, Monica, what is this blockchain stuff you're doing? And I was like, Okay, Christian, he's a nice Texan man. I said, Christian, know how your wife's on Instagram? He's like, Yeah, I hate that. I'm like, I know. But you know, okay, if she's on Instagram and she takes a picture of you in like a silly hat that you hate, he's like, oh, she's done that. I'm like, okay, well, if it's just on her phone, you can like break into her phone and delete it and be like, I hated that picture. I don't want anybody to see that picture. I got rid of it. But if she posted to Instagram, kind of all of us saw it. You can't get into all of our phones and take it off Instagram, right? Because like, Instagram does have a delete feature, but I said pretty much blockchain is Instagram without the delete feature for PDFs and money and transactions. And he said, I hate blockchain. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.
<laughs> you have to maybe try a different way yeah. of explaining things. So, <laughs> so then I, got, I decided to write a little book for like for my cousins, for my family, for my friends, for people that are new to blockchain in general, called Blockchain 101. Exactly. So, I remember, right. Yes. Thank yeah. you for, um, yeah, because we talked about that at our, our, pre our previous chat. Yeah. So uh, why don't you talk a little bit about the Blockchain 101? Um, you know, it's just uh, for people, you know, like you about. said, blockchain seems so intangible, right? You know, and, and I picked real estate as the first foray and application of blockchain and securitization because it's near and dear to my heart, but it's ubiquitous. I mean, everybody knows more about real estate than they even think. They walk past it every day. They see where, you know, you know, people are moving in and the prices jumped up. They see where their rent's getting pushed up, even if they don't own, right? But everybody gets, I know more about real estate in my neighborhood than I do about my app, Apple as a company and I own stock in it. Not much, mm -hmm. but like, you know, which which investment would I actually be able to track better? Which one could potentially be, you know, aggressive, um, you know, ob obscuring and non-transparent peddling of securities? Real estate securities or Apple securities? Come on, I don't even know like the board of Apple, much less the decisions they're making. But I can see on my block who's renovating, how they're putting in granite, granite countertops, if they're just making it like a cheap rental, you know, if there's and if it's a larger, more if not in New York City, like you're out in the, a rural place, you know, are there cars on blocks in the front yard or not? You can see that for yourself and see a sense of value, and it's already inherent there at a property much more than you can see in you know Amazon stock. What is Jeff Bezos going to do next? I don't know. Probably like figure out how to make a space donkey. I don't know what he's going to do with all his money. <laughs> so when I think about that, I'm like, it's so important that the average consumer understands the new opportunities that are coming not just in real estate, but because of blockchain in all of these ways. It's like the fundamental part. And so I wrote Blockchain 101 because I really think it's important for the average consumer to understand these opportunities. And even though I use the internet, I don't understand TCPIP, for example. I don't need to know that to use the internet, to get on Twitter or to get on, not that that's my favorite thing, it's actually one of the worst parts of the internet for me, but whatever the corner of the internet is for you, you can do it without knowing HTTP, really. No, you don't have to know TCPIP. But that was the language which it was written in. So it's not like people need to know the ins and outs of distributed ledger technology and blockchain to be able to benefit from it. What we need now is the equivalent of America Online for the Internet 2.0. America Online took an existing um, technology, a CD at the time, if you recall, yeah. CD, DVD, that everybody knew what to do with. If I'm, we're dating ourselves hugely to say, well, we know anything about this. I hear from old people, this is how it went. And you stick it in the drive of your computer and then it goes, you welcome to the Internet. And here's an email address, and everybody had a whatever at AOL, right? America AOL. Online, yeah. AOL.com. And it made those weird noises right. that you only hear in really old movies like Sleepless in Seattle. So that was how people went from no internet to, you know, kind of engaging it was somebody came up with a way to get people in there and give them an easy onboarding process. So we are one, you know, really good application away from people totally getting the, the part of this, this internet 2.0, this internet value, this internet yeah. money and, you know, may the best woman win. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's going to be a woman out there that's going to do it, going to make a kind of a uh, dating itself again with the, like a Netscape browser. Oh, right. boy, you're going to take it back. <laughs> Not really going back. But yeah, we need something kind of like a browser, like a Google browser, a Safari, or some something. kind of browser that can be uh, on a cell phone mm -hmm. um, because now every, every, everyone's on smartphones. So if someone can come up with an app, 
that can uh, really translate over and make it very uh, Just a good application easy. of blockchain. Yeah. You know? Now, dApps are coming everywhere, and the apps are coming around. So I think it's coming, come, yeah. and we hope it's going to be a woman. That's, that does it. <laughs> <laughs> but we hope that it's anyone. Black woman, just say it perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we just, just hope someone does it very quickly. But it would be better uh, if we can get... Um, uh, a lot of people working on it. That's the important thing, because the more diverse people we have working on a problem, then we can get it solved a lot quicker. Yeah. And uh, that's what this is all about. So, uh, yeah, just to wrap up, thank you very much for coming on. And uh, what we're looking forward is the future of blockchain and the future of real estate. And I think you're, you're on the cusp of really... Um, finding solutions on a level of using what you're doing with Rise Housing well, and then educating people. And I know that you've been speaking at other events and that uh, you've been uh, doing different events. So maybe you can uh, wrap up and let people know about uh, you know your other speaking events and what yeah. you've been doing. Absolutely. I'm going to be, well, I mean, I'm not sure how long this is going to be up, but I am pretty much a frequent speaker at South by Southwest each year. I've been on the speaking circuit in the blockchain conference world, which, you know, that sounds like, like maybe one of the rings of hell at times and sometimes the most fun place to ever be, depending on, you know, who's at the conference. But I've been um, at several conferences and yeah, most of the time I'm not really hitting a conference unless I'm speaking at it. So the more agnostic the conference, the larger the tech conference, the better, because it's nice to introduce people to this cool niche technology. Oh, I'm at MIT next week speaking there. I'll be at a couple of universities as well. It's just been kind of near and dear to my heart to always make sure that I'm engaging the educational sector too. I think that education is a huge part of this and I don't ever want to be one of those out-of-touch business people that's just out to make money. I think we need to be making the world a better place and higher education is where that starts a lot of times. So Yes, I, I agree. Thank you very much for coming on, Monica. Thank you Great so much for having on. me. Thank you. Thank you for coming on Building the Blockchain.